online shopping that occurs at a grocery store where people shop online and have delivered, the grocery store still needs the product. So we still need to supply from that regard. As a matter of fact, I think our value to our grocery store customers in our retail segment has increased through online shopping because the customer who buys online from a grocery store needs to trust the quality and freshness of that product. Hello, and welcome to our show, Fresh Takes on Tech. I'm your host, Bonnie Estes. This season, we are talking about the last mile of produce. How does produce get to its last point of sale or consumption, and how has that changed? We are speaking today with Greg Cazaro, president and COO of Fresh Edge. We're going to talk about the Fresh Edge business, your background, and how you see distribution and the last mile changing. Welcome, Greg. It's great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and uh, about the company. Okay, well, I uh, uh, my my start in produce uh, was in the seventh grade. I my grandfather owned a banana company on the Indianapolis Produce Terminal. So in the seventh grade, in the summers, I started working there. And as those people in the produce industry know, it's tough and in the middle of the night. So that is the absolute. One thing I was never going to do in life for a living. So, so I ended up following in my dad's footsteps. My, my, my grandpa had three sons and a daughter and uh, uh, two of his sons, my uncles, Joe and Danny continued in the produce business. And I, and I worked with them at Indianapolis fruit later, but my dad decided to be a CPA and an attorney. So I followed in my dad's footsteps and I went to college and, and went to law school, became a CPA and attorney, worked at my uh, grandpa's banana company with my uncles during school on breaks and summer. And yeah, in 1992, my uncles called me up and said, hey, uh, um, we, we need business people in addition to produce people. Now, would you come back and join us? So I did at that time. And um, the company was run by my two uncles, Joe and Danny Casaro, and my uh friends slash cousins, not the kind of cousins of cousins, uh, Mike and Chris Mascari. And I work for the, and I've been working in the produce business ever since. As far as Fresh Edge goes, so in 1997, uh, we combined Indianapolis Fruit with Piazza Produce and then, you know, started working with another great individual by the name of Pete Piazza. And we ran our companies together until uh, 2017 when we were acquired by a private equity group by the name of Rotunda Capital Partners. And so we started to build a platform of companies. And our, our first large acquisition was Get Fresh in Chicago. And when we acquired Get Fresh in Chicago in 2019, we decided that we wanted to build a family of best in class produce and fresh food companies, but we, we wanted the companies to maintain their identity and their own uh, reputation. So, uh, we named the parent company Fresh Edge because, uh, because of our emphasis on freshness. And we thought, uh, and still think that some of the things we were doing were cutting edge. So. You know, there came the uh, name Fresh Edge, uh, and we've uh, continued to acquire um, best-in-class companies. I don't know how I many we've done seven, eight acquisitions uh, since 2017, and then in October of this past year, 2022, we were we were sold by one private equity group to a new private equity group by the name of Winpoint Partners. So that's that's where we are today. We have uh, 
we have distributors and we have fresh cut operations and we have a USDA kitchen, all part of our group. Wow, that's amazing. So when it, looking on your website, I was amazed at just looking through all the different kinds of companies and how many like different umbrella brand name companies do you have about? You know, I, I, I'm embarrassed because it's not that many. I can never get the count right. I think we have probably 15 to 17 operating companies, but truly branded and individual, either distribution or production companies. It's more like eight or 10 now. But uh, yeah, I should know that, but I don't. Yeah, no, that's fine. I was just amazed. It'd be like, it's different. If we were like a 50 company group, you would understand me not knowing the number, but <laughs> being less than 20, it's kind of embarrassing. But I think there are 18 individual operating entities, technical entities, and eight to 10 distribution slash processing companies. And within those companies, you have different customers, right? You do do you, you do both food service and grocery? Like who who are your customers across those different? Yeah, companies? so we do. Yes, we do both uh, retail and food service. We're about, uh, I think, sixty five percent food service and thirty five percent retail. That's not by accident. We like the diversification in the customer base. And we like it being skewed a little bit more in favor of the food service sector and the retail sector. But we really like the diversity of uh, the retail versus food service thing. And then also within each of those areas, the segmentation of the different types of food service and retail customers we like as well. And that diversification actually played out to be uh, really advantageous for us during COVID because, uh, um, you know, if we were all skewed toward independent food service, COVID would have, you know, completely killed our entire business. Oh, yeah, but, definitely. Uh, that, that diversity would enable us to really thrive during COVID w- without taking a dime of government money. And we're proud of that. And you're mostly on the East Coast, right? Up and down the East Coast corridor? No, we're actually just inside of the East Coast. So it's kind of a, like a Midwestern corridor. We're in 21 states. And if you can imagine just west of the Mississippi River being our western border, and then the western half of the East Coast states being our eastern border. And so we run all the way down through there and scrape into Texas and, and the panhandle of Florida. Oh, okay. And I'm just interested on your business model and how you think about it. What did you see was the value of having, as you acquired companies, you kept their names and you kept their identity. What did you see as the value of doing it that way instead of just branding the whole thing and making it one big company? Well, you know, people like you and others that are familiar with our businesses, our, our produce in particular is very relational. There's a lot of trust from the minute you make a buy from your supplier to uh, your customer relying on you're going to get perishable product the way they need it, when they need it, and in the way they need it. So the companies that we buy, there's a deep relationship with their customers. And uh, so what we try to do is we, and I think we've been pretty successful at this, is we try to keep the customer facing elements of all of our family companies in place. Because let's face it, Joe's Bar and Grill in Tennessee that buys from McCartney Produce, that's a, that's a, the Joe's Bar and Grill is just a, a hypothetical name. <laughs> they do business with McCartney Produce because of not only the company, but the people that are, that are there. So we buy strong, good performing companies, great performing companies. 
Why would we want to ruin that? I mean, that, you know, that, that is what makes them great, their personal aspects. So, um, that's why we've decided to do that. Now, as we get bigger, that can be cumbersome somewhat, uh, rather than standardizing everything, but we still, uh, we still feel that that's the right model and that's what makes us successful. It's, it's kind of, you know, the whole, it sounds kind of, you know, cliche, the family of companies, but it's really like a family. So, uh, you know, two of our companies are Piazza Produce in Indianapolis and GetFresh in Chicago. Well, they're like Piazza and GetFresh are like their first names and Fresh Edge is like their last name. I mean, they're they're each individuals and they each add uh, great things to the group. So uh, we don't name everybody the same first name. We let them keep their first name. So for this episode, we want to talk about the last mile of distribution and how that's changed. You have so many businesses reaching so many different customers what have you seen over the last, say, five to 10 years that has changed? And what effect did COVID have, as you mentioned? And then also, we're starting to talk about this, the after COVID effect, you know, what, what happened after COVID ended. So if you can tell us a little bit about what you've seen has changed. Sure. So from a real big picture level, our industry uh, was started by a bunch of very, very smart individuals who were hard workers. And I'm not talking just about our companies. I'm talking about the produce distribution in general, because I know a lot of people and they all fit this bill. Started by a lot of hardworking individuals that, that have a lot of integrity and they built their businesses through hard work and through establishing trust relationships with suppliers and customers and operating with integrity. As they grew their businesses, the business was basically, or, or was what we like to say, 80 to 90% art and 10 to 20% science. You know, these individuals grew through family businesses and brought other people in. And really a lot of our business, everything from when to buy what items from what growing areas to how to price your products to how to move them through the supply chain, all was knowledge was between the years and little numerical data analytical type of operations. What we have tried to do with our company is we want to eventually flip that to where we're 10 to 20% art because you can never lose that because that's what makes, that's the secret sauce, but move toward 80 to 90% science. So you're making decisions based on data and analytics. And I think the entire industry, I, I think we've made, we've moved in that direction. I think we're probably 65% science and still 35% art. And I think a big change in the industry is the industry as a whole has moved in that direction, move, move more from the intrinsic knowledge, the, the operating by gut and feel to using data, using analytical principles, using technology to drive the business. So that's the biggest shift I think that I've seen in the 30 years that I've been in the business. And if you, as you see that shift within your company, other parts of the chain have to kind of go that way too, right? Or it makes it hard to, to work with them. I mean, do you see the, the people that you're buying from and the people that you're selling to, are they getting more focused on data and can you interact with them in that way so it makes the whole supply chain go smoother or is it kind of mixed right now? No, it's, I would say that it is mixed, but I would say that the majority of the supply chain interacts on a, on a level that is efficient. Okay. A lot of our shippers are big, big international companies, Dole, 
Chiquita, if you think of those. So obviously being big, big international companies, they've kind of led with a lot of the technology. Some of our customers are huge international companies, Darden Restaurants, for example. You know, we do some short supply business to Walmart. So we're getting led as the distributor from both sides. Uh, and we've also driven by our own needs to get efficient because uh, we're in the middle of the supply chain. Uh, we can't, we, there's no room for excess costs and inefficiencies or, or we would be eliminated. So there's kind of all these pressures from both internally and then from both sides of our chain uh, uh, that have driven this. So when you look at systems and what's changed, is it software or is it hiring different kinds of talent? And, and how have you brought in data and analytics into your business? It's both. Okay. So systems, generic systems that we use to operate. And I, I can understand how I can use my technology to do what I need to do. But sometimes I, when I speak in technological terms, I may not use the right term. So I'm going to apologize for that up front. But, but software has driven the ability when we started with our first software program in 1992, we had someone build us a program the, that was generally distribution based. Okay. In 2004, we acquired a proprietary produce industry software program. So software is developed to where there's stuff written for our industry now and everything continues to be to improve along those lines. Other generic packages or outside packages like you know Microsoft uh, packages and so forth, those have evolved to really uh, enable us to use them better in our industry. So you know software for our industry has improved. We've also, uh, because of costing and efficiency and being able to supply our customers and still be profitable, there's been that pressure to, to utilize just general data principles and analytical principles. This has been accentuated by private equities increased investment in our industry as well. You know, we're on our second private equity group. Private equity platforms are all built on data and analytic, uh, analytically based decision making. So the use of metrics, the use of scorecards are prevalent all over the place now in our company and otherwise, either internally generated or, or driven by a new ownership model. So there's, there's a lot of analytics that you have to do to like with scorecards and say, this is what we've done. This is how we're doing. This is our cost of goods, you know, like those types of things. And then there's the running the business and the running the trucks and, and that sort of thing. So are you pretty integrated across all your systems so that you understand, you know, you really know what's going on in each one of your businesses and how the transportation costs are and how things are moving through the system. Are they all the same systems or are people using different systems? We're very fortunate in that all of our companies are using the same ERP, okay? About half the companies we acquired have the existing ERP we have, and then the other half we were able to convert. We just converted our finished converting our last one in the last month. So that helps. One thing we do when we acquire a company is we put in place our base scorecards and the, and the different KPIs we use to manage the business. Mm. And as far as the things we, we utilize from a scorecarding or analytical perspective, it all starts with, and I'm not sure the, the whole thing's circular, but so it's hard to say it starts with, but our ERP enables, helps our buyers to project out inventory levels that we need. 
you know, based on history, based on what day of the week it is, based on, you know, we're two weeks out from Valentine's Day. So what's your strawberry demand going to be coming up? So it all starts with that. And then every day you have, you, you have to reroute your trucks every day. If you utilize dynamic routing, if you reroute your trucks every day, or if you need to make adjustments, you need a routing system, either inside or outside of your ERP in order to effectively manage that. And then all of it flows through to your financial reporting as well. Uh, your financial statements need to be able to tell you information about what you're utilizing to manage your business or else there's a disconnect there as well. So everything you know needs to tie through all the way to that. And we have to manage those KPIs and the analytics daily at the maximum weekly because in our business being commodity driven, prices change daily. Usually the pricing mechanisms for each distribution company does in fact change every week. So if you're not on top of what's going on in the business from a, from a numbers perspective every week, you know, if you lose a week, you might lose a month and, and, and it could have uh, uh, adverse effects on you. So you distribute a number of different products, not just produce, right? So how is, how does produce different and what, what are some of the considerations around produce that you don't have with other types of products? Okay. So we distribute about 70% now I'm, I'm sorry 60 between 60 and 70% of our distribute our product distribution is traditional fruits and vegetables like you know box of apples box of bananas okay 30 to 40% of our business is different it's either fresh cut fruits and vegetables USDA kitchen items which USDA kitchen items are salads with protein you know uh wraps stuff like that to individual protein items like beef and fish and chicken to non-perishable stuff. That's our 30 to 40% of non-produce. All right. So let's stick that on the side. Some of the discussion about how produce is different applies to some of those other perishable items like unique proteins. We don't sell box beef. We, we sell fresh cut beef and fresh cut meat items. So some of this discussion about how produce is different applies to those items, you know, as well as the fresh cut fruits and vegetables. But so the thing that's different about produce, which makes it hard, is that first of all, the perishability, okay? You can't order once a week, a bunch of items, stick them in a warehouse and deliver them once or twice a week to your customers, okay? That's what makes produce, you know, that's the primary thing that makes produce more difficult than other items. That you have to order frequently, you have to manage your inventory or else if you or else you throw it away and you have shrink costs. You have to know how to treat the items, everything from maintaining the cold chain through how you stack them on pallets to how you make them right on, on a truck to your customer. Um, so the whole perishability thing drives what makes produce different. You know, like I said earlier, that's from frequency of orders to frequency of delivery. And I would say that's the biggest item that makes produce different. I, I guess, you know, another thing that makes produce different is the variability of the pricing. Okay. Because it's, it's great that produce is grown in the ground. Mother nature has the greatest role in, in what, in what comes out of the ground. So, you know, your pricing changes every week. So you be, you need to be able to manage that to make sure you price your customers correctly without driving your customers 
their own customer demand out of whack because you're hammering your customers with too uh, too much price volatility. So how has online shopping affected your business? And are you engaged in that part of the chain? Online shopping has affected it somewhat, but not as much as you may think. So let's talk from this perspective. Online shopping that occurs at a grocery store uh, where people shop online and have delivered, the grocery store still needs the product. So we still need to supply from that regard. As a matter of fact, I think our value to our grocery store customers in our retail segment has increased through online shopping because the customer who buys online from a grocery store needs to trust the quality and freshness of that product. And one of the things we feel we hang our hat on is our quality and freshness and variety is top of the line. So the retailer, if they can feel confident they're getting that from us, then the customer experience through an online order will be better. Okay. Online ordering through a restaurant. Again, the restaurant, we need to supply the restaurant for, you know, as if someone was eating in store. So effect on our supply chain or or our uh, uh, supply volume there, uh, not as much as you think. And again, with the restaurant aspect too, if it's a restaurant that values quality and also values not being out of stock on items, If we can execute on our value proposition, we can enhance that experience of our customers' customers. Where online shopping has affected us is the um, a little bit of the uh, the D to C space where customers order directly from a produce distributor or from a wholesaler to their homes or to their businesses and whatever. But again those places generally need to be supplied from somewhere. We have not gotten into the D2C space from directly from our warehouses, primarily because we can't, we have not been able to see or to make the cost model work. Delivery in the D2C environment is very costly. Why is that? Because there are smaller individual orders that need to be run with several different stops. Okay, so if you can imagine, if you send a tractor trailer full of produce to a grocery store, that costs so much. If you send a straight truck with 10 restaurant orders to a neighborhood with restaurants, that's going to cost more than your full tractor trailer going into grocery because you got all these stops, all these cases delivering up and down outside of the truck. Okay, so if you can conceptualize the change in in cost model there, now switch to a van or a smaller unit that's delivering much more orders that are only five to six cases, the stop and go. They're having to make that work up and down, in and out. That becomes even more costly. So, you know, the more stops you have within the fewer cases per stop, the more costly your distribution business is. So that's how... Once you get down to the D to C, how the, the distribution cost is your biggest. Well, distribution cost and customer acquisition are your two largest costs there. Okay. So we've kind of, we've looked at it. We did a little bit during COVID, but we've kind of stayed away from, from on a bigger business just because the cost model doesn't align with what we do. And I think you're seeing now in the last quarter, some of the businesses, some of the D to C businesses are, are struggling a little bit and you're seeing some layoffs in those businesses. And it's all driven by the distribution cost. 
Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense because that, that's the that's the main cost. And so your business has to be around that, not around food. <laughs> so that makes it more complicated. Correct, correct. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So as uh, my last question is, we're wrapping up. So what are you paying attention to? Like what are the changes and kind of the things that you're thinking about um, for, for this year? Uh, how is the market changing? You know, just what are the things that you're kind of not worried about, but, but planning for? The biggest thing that I think about from a future perspective is, is the workforce. The availability of workers. Hey, our business is tough. You're working in the middle of the night. You're working all night. You are lifting heavy stuff. You're working in a cold, wet environment. If you're delivering, you're up and down out of a truck. You may be, it may be a hundred degrees in the summer and you're climbing in and out of a refrigerated truck. You know, the opportunity to get injured or uh, either through a, a vehicle wreck or, or during delivery or in the workforce, it's hard. It's hard business. And, uh, and so as such, it is probably not at the top of a desired career list for a lot of people. So the supply of workers is, is something I think about a lot. In addition to that, we really feel we care for our people and we want our people to have fulfilling professional and personal lives. So, we need to be able to balance that. And, and we think about that all the time and we talk about it and it's not, and it's not a discussion about we don't have enough people. It's a discussion about, Hey, let's, let's figure out a way to make this work for everybody. So that's, that, that's a big thing that we think about all the time. Lately, inflation has become an issue. And what, what has happened with inflation is number one, again, you think about your people and you think about being able to manage their pay rate. So the company can be profitable and be good stewards to our investors and, and all of our stakeholders. But you also want to pay your people to where they, again, can, can have a fulfilling professional and personal life. Wage increases have not kept place with inflation. And that's concerning. I, um, we're seeing signs that inflation is cooling off and maybe wage increases will align more with cost of living increases and so forth going forward. So, so that's good. But another thing inflation does is it affects, uh, traffic and, and volume of our customers. And then there, then that translates right back up into us. You know, if our customers have less sales and less customer traffic and less uh, volume running through theirs, then, then, then we have less running through our business. So we try to focus on being a solution provider and help making our customers more successful. If we can, if we can drive their businesses to be more successful, it will translate into making us more successful. One question I wanted to ask going back to the labor force. Do you think much of that work, do you think there's a potential of automating some of that work? Some of the not that you're going to get rid of those people, because of course you can't ever get rid of all the people, and you don't want to. But some of the the harder parts of working into the coal and uh, cold and getting in and out of the truck and that sort of thing. Do you see anyone trying to automate some of those steps to do it with robots or? Yes, I do. And it's like anything else. Everybody that you know that thought there there would never be autom- automation in the distribution operation. You know they they've been proven wrong, and and my hesitations, I'm sure at some point in the future, will be proven wrong. There will be a move toward more autom- automation. I don't know if it will be in the 
non-person deliver d- driven trucks with uh, non-people operated vehicles or whether it's going to be in the warehouse picking environment first. The challenge with our business as far as automation goes, if you think of an automated warehouse and picking operation, the packages that are moved ideally through those are similar in size, similar in structure, and similar in weight, and not very sensitive to being handled or touched. Okay. Now look at produce. If you can envision, you know what a flat of strawberries looks like. A flat of strawberries is way different than a box of bananas or a bag of onions. So the ability to automate the picking of that throughout a warehouse is much more complicated. Not saying it will never be able to be done or it's not being done, but it's much more complicated. The other thing is the handling of each of those items is different. And so therefore, so that complicates automation from produce uh, uh, perspective as much as as much as anything else. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because I've I've worked with automation around you know picking like harvesting, and one of the biggest problems is just being able to to not bruise something, to like know how hard to touch it to pick an apple, you know, or to know how to pick a strawberry without damaging it. But when you're talking about those items in a warehouse it's even more complex because you have so many different kinds of items and how do you pick up a flat of strawberries, you know, and how do you, how do you pick and move those things around and stack them? And, and yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but that, that does, you have to have a pretty smart robot (laughs) that, that uh, can do all those things. And think about your harvesting operation. If you had in a row, you had one corn stalk and one tomato vine and one grapevine and, and one banana tree. And then, Two rows over, you might have, you know, potatoes and, and onions and you have to jump from row to row to pick. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. I'm sure some people have figured it out and will continue to figure it out and will eventually get there somewhere. Those are just the challenges I see. Yeah, those are those are definitely big. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate talking to you and hearing about your business and taking care of people all the way from your employees to your customers. So keep doing that and uh, we'll talk to you later. Thanks. Continuing our conversation about changes in the last mile in distribution, we are speaking now with Jim Reynolds, who's the vice president of sales at Pacific Coast Fruit Company, in Kent, Washington. Hey, Jim, great to see you. And tell us a little about yourself and your background. You've been in the industry for a little while, right? Yeah, probably longer than I should admit to, but uh, thanks, Vani. Thanks for having me today. <laughs> Short story, originally from the East Coast, moved around quite a bit. My dad was in, in the business, so I moved quite a bit, but I pretty much call Pennsylvania and Philadelphia home where I got uh, my undergraduate degree at St. Joseph's University in food marketing. Spent some time in the, on the East Coast working for a variety of companies, including Hormel uh, and a brokerage, uh, and then thought, I, you know, I needed to do something different just to kind of get my wild oats out. So I joined the Navy, Oh wow! Uh, spent a little time with the Navy, and then came back into the business once I completed that tour. I really enjoyed my time there, but it did help center me and uh, help get me back into a foundation, which I grew for the last 30 years now, mostly in broadline sales. I was with a company called Food Services of America, a pretty big uh, privately owned company that was recently purchased in the last couple of years by U.S. Foods. I went with the transition to help uh, bring the two companies together. Then after a couple of years, I realized, you know, I was really missing kind of the family atmosphere and ended up with just an incredible company in Pacific Coast Fruit. 
headquartered down in Portland. Uh, as I said, two families uh, that own the company, and um, and they're just tremendous to work for. We have two distribution centers, one here in Kent, Washington, where we take care of the Seattle market and uh, Washington in general. And then we have uh, another operation out of Portland, Oregon. So that's where I am at this point. So for, for this episode, we want to talk about the last mile of distribution, kind of how it's changed. So tell us a little bit more about Pacific Coast Fruit. Who are your customers and, and what have you seen over the time that you've been there? What changes have happened? Yeah, sure. It's uh, Well, our customers, we service both retail and food service out of both houses, probably about a 50-50 branch uh, of our business. Our volume uh, goes between the retail outlets, mostly um, the local regional chains up in the Northwest, and then uh, the whole wide array of food service customers as well. For the last couple years, let alone five, it's just hard to even think back how much has changed. And yet when you look back, you realize it. it's just been an incredible evolution of change the industry in general. There's been a lot of cleaning out, I would think, uh, of the industry. Folks who didn't do their business well or didn't understand how to do their business, unfortunately, weren't able to bear the tide and challenges that, of course, COVID and then the subsequent challenges have uh, have presented. Uh, from suppliers to distributors to end users, everyone has faced that out. And those who didn't run a tight ship realized that they needed to quickly or needed to do something else. Uh, I find that customers want more. Uh, they're more demanding. Uh, because we have developed an environment in which more can be provided, yet they realize they've been through the ringer and they're looking for partnerships as well. So uh, I've noticed consolidation, quite a bit of consolidation in the industry. Uh, and again, partnerships and loyalty have become a, a really key part of, uh, of doing business that has become more prevalent than, uh, than over the last several years. Oh, that's interesting. So certainly being a family business, I'm sure helps with the the loyalty and just the longevity, right? It's, yeah, it sure has. It's And it's just really, it's so transparent. And so uh, folks can see through nowadays. You have to be transparent. You have to be authentic. And this company in particular, family companies in general, tend to really connect better with their customer base because they can relate on a family to family level. What effect is inflation having? What are you hearing from from customers and 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 the people you buy from? Yeah, it's an interesting concept because on top of inflation, which has been across the board, we've, it, particularly up here in the Northwest, we've experienced a pretty high uh, minimum wage. And so with the minimum wage increases, which also impacts the expense of doing business on top of inflation, which rampages through the supply chain, as well as the cost of just doing business from insurance to rents to water and electric, the, the inflation has made it much more much more important to keep an eye on the bottom line. And so that's driven a lot of conversations around cost, which has always been traditionally a conversation between suppliers and, and distributors. Uh, but it has become more than that now in that it's a, uh, it's, a, it's a total understanding of how can I be more profitable as an organization. And that can come from a lot of ways other than just what's the cheapest out there. So what are the biggest differences between distribution to food service and retail? Are those completely separate businesses? Are they crossover? Are they completely different fleets? How does that work? Well, interesting. And also in line with the changes that we've seen, there are still two really diverse customer bases. Uh, you know, uh, retail just physically usually does a much greater volume, more frequent deliveries, uh, more interest in cost and pricing, but also much more... Um, dependency on supply chain. And food service, smaller, less frequent, uh, smaller pack sizes, 
They expect more variety. They're more in tune with trying to keep changing up the menu where retail has a smaller kind of shopping list to work from. Mm. Food service is looking for consultative partners, so looking for people who help them be profitable across the board, across their entire company, whereas retail is much more uh, departmentalized and works in the sense of departments. That said, we're finding that we're partners more with the whole organization now than just the produce departments that we would normally service. So things are changing, uh, yet they're staying the same. Value add is becoming more important, particularly in the face of labor constraints. Uh, not only finding labor, which we all know is so hard, but finding skilled labor, and then finding skilled labor that you want to represent your company continues to drive that pool smaller and smaller. So one of the evolutions I'm seeing more and more is, is the reemergence of value add in that can this be done prior to me receiving it, where some of the steps that are labor intensive can be taken out of the pro- out of the process before I as the end user receive it. And that's where our food our prepared foods category comes in. Yeah. So what so what are you doing on the prepared foods? And is it is it mixes or what um and, and where do you do that function like trimming and packaging? We have an internal manufacturing facility in our Portland office. Uh, we transfer trucks twice a day to service our Kent customers, Seattle customers. So it's pretty much next day uh, up here and uh, in Seattle as, as well as in Portland. Uh, there's a kind of kind of three sections of it. One is just the slicing and dicing, things that just take labor, uh, slicing big carrots into little carrots and, uh, and dicing cabbage and just the prep work that is in the back of the house in a lot of restaurants and, and increasingly retail does as well. They're finding that both the labor and the consistency and the safety and the uh, final product, it's much better to have that done by someone who's professionally managing that rather than whoever showed up for labor today. You get a better product, less waste, less injury. Uh, so those are kind of part of the business. The second is kits. We do a whole bunch of business that is either a prepare and serve kit as in a deli case or even grab and go kits that you can sell as they are. They're very popular with uh, today's consumers, and they're easy for a retailer to stock and shelf without a lot of of their own manual labor. And then we also do a very specialized work. If somebody has a particular mix or a particular item that they need that they'd like us to prepare for them, if the volume supports it, we'll put that into our mix as well. So we're constantly changing our offering and prepare foods. We have about 250 SKUs down there right now. But again, those kind of come and go as demand requires. So in retail, are those branded? Do you brand your own products or are they they branded by the store? You know, we don't. It's branded by the store, particularly, of course, the mix and serve as in a deli case. You don't see the brand other than the customer, but even in the grab and goes. Now, in some of our uh, some of the other distribution centers, not Pacific Coast, uh, there is some branding going on. Uh, We can certainly brand for the customer on the products uh, that that we're distributing for them. But we don't carry any particular brands of our own at this time. We have a very vibrant marketing department, um, and they are really on it. So I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if branding isn't in the future for us. So do you think that that part of the business, the prepared food, do you think that's going to continue to grow? Uh, yeah, well, what a great question, Bonnie, because I struggle with it, too. I don't struggle with it, but there's so many opinions on the role of prepared yeah, food. Sure. Yeah, is it a necessary evil that you have to do it? Because it does take a lot for us. We're not in the production I business. Bet. We're in the distribution yeah. business. So it puts us in a different world of manufacturing. And yet it gives us a real flexibility in how to service our customers better and to become more of a one-stop shop for them. So I think prepared foods are definitely here to stay. Uh, I think they're going to be, as with everything else, uh, they have to turn a profit. 
Uh, you can't do onesie twosies because you have to change the whole line, clean the line out, refocus with new resources that you're creating your next kit from. So there's an element there that volume has to drive a business decision on what we carry, but also the personalization of it for our customers, I think is a real value add and a real service that uh, I know we're not walking away from and I'm interested in pursuing. I think they're finding more room in the food service world where traditionally they haven't existed, again, because of the cost and availability of the labor. They're starting to realize that, boy, if I don't have to hire a prep cook or I don't have to hire somebody or I can't find somebody to come in and prep a dinner and I can just open a bag, uh, it has a lot of appeal. So I'm seeing more more interest and growth in prepared foods in the in the food service side of the house as well. Yeah, that makes sense. My first one of my first jobs in high school was working in the back of a restaurant doing all of that salad prep. Um, and you know, and yeah, yeah, and I hated it. And they they liked me because I was actually an employee that showed up, but you know, many <laughs> didn't. So that it's a hard it's a hard labor market there. Yeah, and that's it too. Nobody wants to do it, or you want to move out past that. So uh, if we can yeah. replace that, it's a win for everybody. Yeah, exactly. So do you distribute products other than fruit? You know, we do fruit and vegetables. So the up and B. Uh, we do some dairy here, uh, some eggs. Uh, primarily, though, fruits and veggies. It's, a, it's an interesting, interesting category. And as I said, I'm from a broadline background. So most of my experience up till this time has been including produce, uh, but it has also been all the other canned and groceries and center of the plate and everything else. So it's been really interesting to be strictly a produce house. It, it's an, a fascinating area of study, if you will. Obviously, the perishability and the importance of turns and the importance of forecasting, it's at, a, at an all-time high on a product that from the moment it's picked starts to become less and less valuable. The clock starts ticking right at harvest. The importance of storage, proper storage and handling, particularly in the warehouse, we have uh, seven different temperate zones, if you will, with a difference of temperature and humidity because products hold differently in different areas of moisture and temperature. Uh, and then, of course, finally, the, the, the most fascinating part of it, I think, is, is managing the supply chain. Uh, there's, of course, the real seasonality of product, which is getting longer and longer as we're finding new places to source from. We source everywhere from New Zealand to South Africa, let alone the normal growing areas in the United States, Mexico, and Central and South America. So there's a lot of increasing availability, but it also brings increasing varieties and, and they're always coming up with something new, something I hadn't realized as much in the produce business, how often new products are, are entering the market as, as growers experiment with ways to provide a product that is durable and will last the journey. So seasonality, and of course, you see the weather and what that can do but in a moment's notice to the availability and supply chain. We're seeing in California right now across the board with the brainstorms they have going on down there. So how do you evaluate if someone comes to you and they have something new that you haven't tried before? How do you evaluate whether that's something you want to take on or not? Uh, a new product like from one of our growers? Yeah. Bonnie? Yeah. Well, we're really anxious. We're, we're like our customers are always interested in new products. Everybody wants to see something new, particularly in the retail world. That's, that's kind of an evolution too, is that they're always looking for kind of the latest and greatest things. Sumo oranges are one of the latest that are just delicious. Yep. And, and yet, yet don't have a, a real a shelf appeal unless you know what you're looking at and you know what you're going to get. So uh, it doesn't have that, uh, that curb appeal. Yeah. So retail in particular is always looking for new ideas. Our retail customers are always saying, bring us new ideas, bring us new ideas. 
catch the eye of the consumer and set themselves apart in their own business as well. The latest has been Seedless uh, Lemons. Yeah. A really interesting concept. It doesn't seem like it's that new, but you know, when you think of what the seeds do to dishwashers and to, you know, just fl- floating around your plate or your drink, the idea of a seedless lemon has great appeal for both from a bar through a normal, a normal setting on a plate. So uh, those kind of things people are always looking, looking for. That said, cost is always part of the equation, particularly with something new because it hasn't proven or grown an audience yet. Yeah. But we're always looking for the new, the new stuff. So you touched a little bit on how your suppliers have changed that you're buying from all different geographies, but what other ways have your suppliers changed and, and how have your customers changed as well? Yeah. Uh, again, it, it's so evolving and staying on top of it is, is interesting. There's less, uh, for one thing, there's less of a division between retail and food service. Huh. So we're seeing a lot more of that cross period of grab and go from a food service side, which is traditionally a retail world. And then on the retail side, much more of the grab and go and cooked, uh, final cooked uh, and deliverable products, not only from their deli case, but from their hot cases. You're really seeing that there's a lot of gray in between the both. That said, uh, the, the suppliers, uh, primarily loyalty is still very important, uh, particularly when sourcing becomes such an issue or availability. So building a good, strong, honest and loyal relationship with our suppliers has been an incredibly important part of our ability to service our customers. So that idea of loyalty, and particularly heightened by the, the challenges of labor and transportation and supply, has become even more important. And communications have become incredibly important. To know that something is going to be out a week from now is a lot better than to know it's, that it's going to be out today. So uh, helping each other really stay informed about what to expect allows us to be more flexible in helping to figure out solutions and come up with answers. For customers, they're more savvy. Uh, the world of information is at their fingertips. Uh, that said, there's so much information at their fingertips that I think that they eventually uh, ha- turn back to us for information anyway because they could find anything out on the internet. That doesn't mean that it's all yeah. true. So, Shocking uh, that. So they're, yeah. Well, they have access to it all. The more they see, the more they realize they don't know and need that help of a of an expert or a specialist. And so that's the role we turn to play. Uh, loyalty is important with our customers as well, which I appreciate because, again, it, it takes a while to build it. But it's critical that our relationship is one that can be dependent on because so much is at stake, including the health and longevity of, the, of the, both of our businesses. So uh, consultative services, again, and that need for communication still flows all the way through to our customer base. So how has online shopping affected your business? And are you engaged in that at all as a supplier? Yeah, absolutely. Revolutionary and evolutionary. Uh, we are just now releasing a brand new e-com system. We're very excited about it. Oh. talking about our marketing department. Yeah, so we're really excited that within the next month, we've already been through testing. We have some uh, some prototypes going out that we're making sure that we've dusted off the, the uh, what might be a bug in the system. And we're really excited about getting that back in. It allows so much more. For one thing, we all know that people order more, and I'm guilty of it myself online. You order more for yourself online than if somebody were in front of you trying to take an order. You just tend to go, yeah, I need this. Oh, I need that. That looks good. It, you don't feel like you're uh, you're being yeah. sold. <laughs> you're, you're your own worst salesperson, I think, or best salesperson. But uh, we know that people order more online. So it's better for us. It releases the time that that our reps were taking orders to cover all those other things our customers need, all of that information, communication, help with their business. So it really allows them to do what they do better. It turns our customer service teams into more 
uh, informational and support networks, not order takers. So I'm really excited about the changes we're going to see in customer service as a result. Uh, we can personalize the buying experience. It can be tailored to the individual's interests. And of course, as a consumer, these things all resonate with me as well. Uh, we can communicate better with our customers and telling them what's going on and what isn't, bring them new ideas that we know are pertinent to them. Those who don't recognize and embrace technology are putting themselves in a perilous position. It's, it's not a matter of, of deciding whether to go with change. It's whether change will leave you behind or whether you get to go with it. So they want, uh, they want information. They want it in short gulps. And they want it when they want it. And all those things can be answered through online, uh, online shopping, online services. And that leads um, to my last question. And, and so much of what you've been talking about has been about better communication and digital communication. And um, so how are you using new technology in your operation? And is it new software or hardware or, you know, how, how have, has new technology been integrated? Yeah, uh, great question. And again, it's a constant evolution of what's new and what's latest, what's greatest. Every time I get around somebody who's, uh, who's, working in word or excel some of the traditional traditional microsoft platform for just communications i learn how much i don't know about these systems and how much i use so little of what the capabilities are i think our technology is the same there's so much available and yet we don't mine what we already have so mining it ease of access to the information that's available i think analytics has been incredibly important for us in managing our own business as well as helping our customers it helps us with efficiencies. It helps us with pricing models and costing and all the other things. So it, it is integral in our ability to uh, to run our own business as well as uh, as well as help our customers run their business. Social media as an offshoot of that, incredibly important. Uh, we're finding that, and of course, that evolves. Uh, YouTube has gone by the wayside, and I think TikTok may go by the wayside. Uh, there's always something, some new way to communicate, a new avenue. So staying ahead of it or on it without missing the boat or uh, or um, or incorrectly utilizing it uh, has been very important for us. And again, increasing load on our marketing department to make sure that we're optimizing the leverage that social media can bring. And then, as I said, probably the idea of customer service and where they will go in the future. Uh, that's very exciting to me about the service that that internal team can really provide uh, on a day-to-day -day basis should really help differentiate us or at least keep us in the game. Yeah. And nowadays, almost everything you do keeps you ahead for a little bit <laughs> and then maybe not so much after that. Yeah, I think just the ability to have information on customers at your fingertips and and also the ability to know where things are that you know you're buying and selling is just going to have a huge advantage and it's not spreadsheets and text messages anymore you know people can really pinpoint where things are and and can find problems faster that way too right yeah it's amazing uh, and i again it, there's every day is a fun day when, because there's always something new there's something new in the product side or the technology side or the skill side that makes this industry in particular so exciting to be a part of well, that's a great place to start, to stop. And uh, thank you so much for your time, Jim. And we'll talk to you another time. Bye. Oh, thanks, Johnny. Thanks so much for having me today. I had a lot of fun and, uh, and best of everything. You've been listening to Fresh Takes on Tech, a podcast from the International Fresh Produce Association. Keep connected with us by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you like what you've heard, please rate the show. That helps us keep delivering the latest on produce technology. Thank you for listening. Until next time.